tonight I, I am trying to, well let me just be honest, Hebrews is not a book that I normally uh, preach from and talk about. It, it, it is one of the more difficult books to read. Now, as I've been able to study it, and hopefully as you have joined with us over the last, I think, four lessons that we've done, I trust that, that you have learned that it's not really as complicated as it seems. The, the, the language of the King James Version can uh, make it a little bit more difficult. But it, it really is, and so if you'll give me just a moment, I want to reset the stage. We, we, it's been a, a week or so uh, in between since we've been able to get back to the book of Hebrews. We had a guest uh, missionary speaker uh, that, that was there too. And, um, but I, if I can, as, as simple and as quickly as I can, let me put you back into the, into the mindset of what was happening in the first century church, okay? We believe, and, and, and I, I don't mean this as just we believe and it's okay for anybody else to believe what they believe, but we know the Bible teaches us, and, and really, to be honest, everything that you logic teaches us, and you're going to see a lot of that in just a little bit, there is one God. We don't believe in the Big Bang. We don't believe in some evolutionary primordial swamp that some amoeba grew legs and outcrawled a salamander and then you keep going and you get us. That's not, it doesn't work that way. There was, there is, however you want to look at it, a, a, a God that existed before time, a God that existed without creation and he created the earth. Adam and Eve come into play and, and you know, he creates Adam and Eve, he, he, he forms them and then they, uh, they grow. Now we know they sinned. But, but understand that it comes from two people. The rest of humanity goes from there. Adam and Eve had walked with God in the cool of the afternoon. Adam and Eve had had a relationship with them. We see remnants, and, and we don't know everything that happened, but we can see that there was ultimately teaching passed down to their children. You see Cain and Abel, and they offered sacrifices unto the Lord. Why did they offer sacrifices? The Bible doesn't say God told them to. I assume God had instilled that in Adam and Eve, but they offered sacrifices. You keep going, and, and, and you have uh, Noah. Noah was a righteous man, and it seems to be the only righteous man that could be found in all of the earth. And it's not hard to think that, and, and there's been sociological studies done. I remember a book, and I have tried to find this book. It is somewhere either packed away or I've lost it over the years, but I've gotten a hold of a book. It's an older book called The Origin, and, and it's not Darwin, but it's The Origin of Man, and it was written from a, a, a Bible perspective, and it kind of did some science teaching to tell you how many people could possibly be when, when God flooded the earth. You start looking through how long people lived and the generations and all of that, it the earth was full, but there was one righteous man, Noah. After that, it keeps going, and, and there, there's truth that is getting passed down. There's no organized religion, so to speak. There's no uh, uh, churches. There's no synagogues. There's no uh, temples, at least as far as to worship the one true God. And, and so now you have Abraham. He's called out of the land of Ur which is probably in Iran somewhere. And, and he's called out, and God says, I'm going to make your seed to be as, as this, the sand on the seashore or you know, the stars in the sky. And, 
God begins to give Abraham a covenant. We preached about that a couple weeks ago. God gave Abraham a covenant. Through Abraham, you you get through a couple generations. Now you have the 12 sons of of Israel or or, um, what was his other name? Jacob, thank you. And uh, I'm off of my notes, so just hang with. I really just want to see if y'all are paying attention. That's what it was. it was. It was calculated right there. But now you have those 12 tribes of Israel. There is still no organized religious uh, church, if you will. Of course, uh, they sell Joseph down into slavery. It was prophesied all the way to Abraham that it was going to happen. Joseph's down in Egypt. Uh, now there's a famine. Jacob and, and, and his sons come down. You know the story. I'm just trying to set something in motion so we can get there. Now you have them, them 400 years in bondage. God calls Moses. Moses is out in the wilderness. He had run. God calls him, burning bush. Now Moses comes. Through the power of God, God delivers these captive people they called Israelites, if you will. Brings them out into the wilderness. In the wilderness, there around Mount Sinai, God is is not only creating a nation out of slaves, but God is creating a a people, and he wants to help people worship him. No longer is God content just to let men do it out of what they feel in their hearts, which is how it really should be. We know that there is a God, and and our very nature, our very soul ought to scream, I want to worship him, even if you didn't have a Bible. It's built inside your DNA that you have a creator that you worship. But mankind has tendencies to fall astray. And so God gave them the law. The law was not perfect. The law was actually, it was pretty harsh to be honest with you. And God gives that to them. The temple is erected, or the tabernacle rather, is erected. And and it becomes a very systematic approach to worshiping God. Sacrifices are now not something you do of worship, now they are required. And so you go through that and you have that. God gives the law to Moses, he calls uh, uh, priests to come out of the lineage of Levi and Aaron is there. It's a priest. It's if you sin, you've got to bring an animal and they have to sacrifice. And there was ritual. When you read Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and Numbers, that sometimes it sounds like it's saying the same thing over and over and over. It's because God was making clear this is what has to happen. It was a a very Strict system of worship. Not only that, but you had so so the day of the, the day of atonement, which we're going to talk about in a moment. The day of atonement was once a year that the high priest would bring two goats, and they would come in. One goat they would kill, and they would take the blood of that goat. Some of it they would well. First off, they would take the other goat they didn't kill, and they would put their hands on that goat, and they would, in a sense, and and I'm being very elementary so I can I can go through it they would say all of the sins of Israel for this year we place on this goat all of the sins that they've uh, that they've done for the last 365 days of course they didn't have that kind of a calendar but for us to understand we put it on this goat that's where we get the term scapegoat from they took that goat that has now been tasked with carrying the sins of a nation 
They kill the other goat. The blood is put on the altar. Some of the blood is sprinkled on the goat that's, that, that carries the sin symbolically. They take that goat way, way out into the wilderness and they let that goat go so far that that goat has no chance of ever coming back to the camp. So much that if an animal gets it, if a, if a, if, if a lion or, or something was to eat that goat, we don't care. We want that sin as far away from us as possible. And they carry that. All through the Old Testament, it, it goes. And man, not only could they not follow the laws that, that God gave them. I mean, we, we talked about that this last sermon. Uh, you don't even get past Jericho and they're already sinning. But not only can they not follow the laws that God has given them, man decides they're going to add more laws because that makes sense, right? You can't follow what God gave, let's make more laws. And so now this Jewish understanding of serving God begins to grow. And now we're into the times of captivity where Israel and Judah, the two nations, if you will, they're taken, the two kingdoms, they're in captivity they can't have their temple or tabernacle anymore. It's not there in, in, in Babylon. It's not there in those places. And so now they begin to worship in a synagogue type manner. They gather in homes. They gather in places. And they're worshiping. They're following Moses' law. It becomes a, a, a literally the mo- going through the motions. Checking off a list. I've done this, I've done this, I've done this. And in that understanding, on a starry night in Bethlehem, Jesus is born. And Jesus, as he grows, now we know it's God manifest in the flesh, but let me take you back to these Jews. They don't understand that. They're having a hard time. They think that Jesus is a good prophet. They think that Jesus is a man God is going to raise up that's going to build an army and, and take over Rome and kill the Caesar and, you know, set up a great kingdom. They're looking at a man who can be a, a savior. They're not looking at one who can save them from their sins. And so here you go. Jesus is talking and Jesus says things like, I've not come to destroy the law but to fulfill the law. In the law it says that if you murder someone, you've sinned. I tell you that if you say in your heart, I hate them, or you think you want to murder them, you're wrong. I say, you know, the law says if you commit adultery that, or, or, or fornication, the act, that's sin. Jesus says if you look on a woman to lust or if you look on a man to lust, you've committed adultery in your heart. So Jesus is walking through this, and now Jesus is telling them, I, I'm going to have to leave y'all, but, but, but I'm not going to leave you comfortless. I'm going to come back. He dies on the cross. He's buried. He rises again. Now he walks with them for a little bit. Now he's, he's ascended up into heaven. They're standing there gazing. And the angels say, go to Jerusalem, Jesus said. They go to Jerusalem. And there in Jerusalem, Acts chapter 2, the Holy Ghost falls. And the church is birthed. Because what Jesus wanted to do is take your salvation out of a legalistic, uh, uh, let's check it off, uh, sacrificial system to one of complete atonement. That Jesus dying on the cross, the blood that he shed for you is sufficient once and for all. There remaineth no more sacrifice needed for our sins. 
And so now you have, at the first of Acts, you have a predominantly Jewish people that are Christian now, to use that word. They're, 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 they're understanding that the Old Testament, because that's all they had. They didn't have the New Testament. They had the scriptures. They had the old, they had Isaiah. They had the prophets. They had Psalms. And we've been reading that. And so they're beginning to see that Jesus, that God had always intended for what's happening now, the Holy Ghost, and, and walking by faith and not by sight. And, and but when the rubber meets the road, these new Christians that had a predominantly Jewish background begin to say, I know we need to be filled with the Holy Ghost. I know that we need to uh, be baptized in Jesus' name. But, you know, this Cornelius dude over here, this centurion of the Italian band, he's, he's a Roman and most likely, and, you know, he just got the Holy Ghost. And we're glad Cornelius got the Holy Ghost. We're glad that, that he's, he's saved, but don't you think he ought to get circumcised? Don't you think he ought to wear tassels on his robe? Don't you think he ought to do everything that Moses said we ought to do? And that's where the writer of Hebrews comes in. The writer of Hebrews wants to explain that the Old Testament pushes towards the new. And that once you have Jesus, you don't need any thing else don't be looking for you know uh, uh, I think it was John the Baptist when he was in prison he he sent some of his disciples to Jesus and they asked him they said are you the Christ are you the Messiah or should we look for another well can I tell you that same question is being asked today is this really all we need or do we need something else and so we have spent, I think, four lessons already on the book of Hebrews. We have, uh, we, we have talked about just kind of the introduction of Hebrews. We didn't even get into it, but just we, we, we've been talking about Jesus is better than the angels. Jesus is better than Aaron. Uh, or I'm sorry, Jesus is better than Moses. But tonight, I want to take you to Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15 through Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 10. Uh, if you have read your Bible, if, you, if you've been around the church in any length of time, th- some of these verses are going to be vi- very, very familiar to you. But I want you to see it, and I don't think I'll be very long tonight because the next section is, is a little bit longer, and, and so I didn't want to combine sections, and, and, and so we're just going to take these... Uh, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 through 5, uh, 10. And, and I want to talk to you a little bit about Jesus is a better high priest than Aaron. And we want to we really get into this. Uh, so I want to invite you to read with me. Starting the book of Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. You can follow along and, um, and then we'll go. Remember, we ended last time with the word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing asunder. You know, it reaches to the depths of us. And it goes there. But now look at verse 15. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed unto the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. 
Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. And then we're going to go into chapter 5, verse 1. For every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men in the things pertaining to God that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sin. Who can have compassion on the ignorant and on them that are out of the way for that he himself is also compassed with infirmity. And by reason thereof he ought, for as the people also for himself to offer for sins. And no man taketh this honor unto himself, but he that is called of God, as was Aaron. So also Christ glorified not himself to be made a high priest, but that he said unto him, Thou art my son, today have I begotten thee. As he saith also in another place, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death, and was heard in that he feared, though he were a son, yet he learned, uh, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him, called of God and high priest after the order of Melchizedek, of whom we have many things to say and hard to be uttered, seeing that, that you are dull of hearing. And I, I shouldn't have gone to verse 11. We'll do that next time. So uh, we're going we're gonna to take a little bit of time and we're going to talk about Jesus, the greatest high priest, the ultimate high priest. And it uses this after the order of Melchizedek. Now later we're going to really delve into that. But, but let's, let's take some time. Um, the, 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 the priesthood was central to uh, the Old Testament Mosaic law and, and, and the covenant that God established at Sinai. And so you can read, there were nine chapters in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Nine chapters simply dealt with who the high priest was going to be and how he ought to operate himself. And, and so if you don't have a high priest, nothing else would have mattered in that covenant. If you would not have had a high priest to offer sacrifice for you, you could have all the altars in the world, you could have all of the table of showbread, you could have the, the, the lamp, but if you didn't have a high priest, the covenant was null and void. And so I want you to grab that in your mind. The covenant was, was contingent on the work of the high priest. This high priest, not, not just anybody could be a high priest. Not just anyone could say, I'm going to go offer these sacrifices. No, no. In, in, in the covenant on Mount Sinai, it was limited to those that came from, from uh, uh, Levi. But the writer of Hebrews begins to say that we have a high priest that doesn't follow Levi. Doesn't follow the covenant that was given on, on the law. Jesus didn't come just to complete the covenant. He said, I've come to do something better. Jesus didn't come just to give you a better understanding of the Ten Commandments. Jesus said, I've come to save you and, and, and so that you can live even above sin. And, uh, I mean, if, if you want to take the genealogies, and again, look at, at what we preached this week uh, on, on Sunday. Jesus came from the tribe of Judah. All of those, Rahab, Tamar, uh, 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 David, all of those, Bathsheba, they're, they're tribe of Judah lineage. He didn't come from the lineage of, of Levi, but it's because Jesus' priesthood was not uh, followed. It, it wasn't patterned after Aaron. It was patterned after Melchizedek, and that seems deep, but it really is powerful. And so uh, Jesus, Jesus came. 
when, when we talk about the incarnation, and I know I've used this phrase a lot because this has been a phrase that I have found that helps me understand it. I've said that the incarnation of, of God, the, the, that, that Jesus born in a manger, it was a God who had an a unknowable uh, divine existence. And he added to that existence a complete humanity. And so it's not like what you and I have. I mean, I have Jesus living inside of me. I have the Holy Ghost. But, but I've not, I am not the incarnate son. Does that make sense? It's, it's not just God decided to, to, for example, you can read in the Old Testament when they were building the tabernacle, when they were building the temple, it would say, and the Holy Ghost came on somebody, and they were able to make this incredible uh, uh, work on, on, on the, the temple. You know, it, it basically, God gave them uh, a power. God gave them understanding. God gave them abilities. Or God, you know, touched them. I've been touched by God. Jesus lives inside of me, but I am not God manifest in the flesh. Jesus was all God, and he was all man. But in the incarnation, because he was all God, it did not override, it did not overwhelm the humanity. And I want you to understand that Jesus had the complete faculties of you and I as human. It wasn't that God you know, used him like a puppet. It wasn't that God told him where to walk and made him walk there. The Bible says in that verse 15, for we have not a high priest, and, and I know this is a, a it, it's kind of a negative, so if, you, if I could take out all of the knots, it would say we have a great, uh, or we have a high priest who is touched by the feelings of our infirmities and was in all points tempted like you and I were. And, and he was. It was not a, a facade. It was not. And, and one of the things that I, as I grow older, I don't like using the term Jesus was God robed in flesh. It was not a costume. We're fixing to have Halloween and, and however you decide to celebrate that, more for you. I recommend don't dressing up like a clown. You might get shot. But if you want to be in a play or if you want to put on a costume, I can put on a costume and look the part. But I'm not. I can put on scrubs and put a stethoscope around my neck and, and, and have one of those silver plates on my head and I can look like a doctor. But I'm not a doctor. I'm playing a part. God did not play the part of humanity. Jesus was human. And he was tempted like you and I. He, he, he was there. And, and, and the reason is, is because the high priests under the Mosaic law, they were tempted. Don't you know that there was a time when a high priest, someone came to the high priest and, and, and said, this, I, I, I have sinned and I need to offer this sacrifice. And, and that high priest goes, I've done that same thing before. That was the difference. The, Mo, the, Mos, the you know, Aaron and, and the high priest that came after it, they would, would, would be tempted and they would fall. All you have to read is Judges. You find a lot of problems in priests. But Jesus was tempted. They didn't fall. And the reason that temptation was here is because it allows him to understand exactly what you and I go through in our life. And I don't know how to say this better, but if you could think of any temptation you've ever been tempted with, so was Jesus. But can I tell you today, 
have you ever um, have you ever tried to talk to someone that you knew had no idea what you're going through? Let me let me put it this way: if and 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 I, if you've ever experienced a loss, a loss of a of a child, a loss of a, of, a, of a mother or a father, whatever loss you want. And, and someone has never experienced that kind of loss. And they say, I know what you're going through. In the back of your mind, you're screaming, no you don't. You've never walked this place before. We, the, the reason the Bible says that we have, we, we, we have this high priest and we can go boldly into the throne of God is because when I go to Jesus, I'm not going to one that's perfect and, and or, or rather, in, 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 let me back that up, he is perfect, but I'm not going to one that has, has sat up here and he's never been touched, he's never walked in the shoes that I've walked in, he's never been tempted and he sits up there like some high almighty deity going, huh, why'd you mess up? The Bible says when I go to Jesus, I'm going to one that's walked where I've walked. I'm going to one that's faced what I've faced. The difference is he didn't sin, and so he can show me how I can live like him, but he has sympathy because he's felt those same pains. He's felt those same drawing away. He's, he's had someone spit on him before. He's had someone yell at him. He's had the devil come right to him. And, and when he's hungry at 40 days of fasting, and, and it would be so easy just to turn Scripture around and pick up a rock and turn it into bread. But he didn't. And so we can come boldly to the throne we've got a high priest that's been there that's done there he knows the struggles that you and I face and I'm so glad it uses the term we come boldly to the throne of grace the most common definition I've heard all of my life you have too most likely what is grace grace is the unmerited favor of God God shouldn't love us God shouldn't even care about us but he does John chapter 1 verse 17 says it this way, that the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And that's a paraphrase of that scripture. Grace becomes the new characteristic. Grace becomes what this is all about. Now, we understand we're not going to use grace as a doormat. It's not that, that I can sin and just keep sinning because grace is poured out. Grace is not some shower that I can walk into and I can do whatever I want to do and come in and say, okay, grace is here. We understand all that. We don't frustrate the grace of God, as one writer in the Bible said. But, but here's the beauty of it. There is grace. The Bible says that his throne is a tr throne of grace. Now watch this. In the simplest terms, grace, the unmerited favor of God. But that doesn't get rid of the sin. But mercy... Mercy. See, let me read that verse again. Verse 16 of chapter 4. Let us therefore come boldly into the throne of grace. Let us come boldly to where we grain favor from God. You with me so far? That we may obtain mercy. Mercy is the actual forgiveness of sin. 
Mercy is when he comes and he does that. And here's what happens. And, and I felt it. And I'm telling you, the more I read my Bible, the more I read of, of Hebrews and things like this, the more excited I am. Watch this. When I come to kneel at an altar and I came in my broken, sin-filled, horrid state, separated from God, he shouldn't have loved me. He shouldn't have cared for me. But somewhere in that, because of grace, because of the cross, I came back boldly to an altar and I came and I was able to stand in the favor of God and instead of finding a God that condemned me I found a God that says I've walked where you've walked but I died for you and my blood satisfies the law and whatever you need I can do it and the atonement is once and for all he stands as one rotor one rotor one rider wrote let's do it that way He stands ever ready at this time of need for grace and mercy. Now, remember Hebrews is all about the contrast of the old and the new. What does the Old Testament tell us about coming to the throne of God? You can't, only one person could go behind the veil, that high priest. Only one person could come. Brother Miller, if you had sinned, you got to drag that lamb to a priest and the priest is going to kill it and it may not even be the high priest. There was other priests that did the duty and you would have to stand out away from the holiest of holies, away from the presence of God. There was not a a freedom to come into the throne room of God. In in fact, there were times that people did it. You've got... uh, uh, the, the gentleman that, that touched the ark when it was coming back from the Philistines, he touched the ark and, and in that even though he, he was trying to do something good, the, the, the understanding was you can't be that close to the holiness of God and he died. They lived in a fear, even the high priest lived in a fear that if I ever walked behind the veil, not right, if I didn't do all of the the symbolic cleansings, if I didn't go through all of the motions, if I didn't do it just right, I would walk behind the veil and I would die. They couldn't be there. But now you and I, we come boldly to the throne. And I don't have to, uh, while I hang my head in the, in the shame of my sin, I don't have to hang my head in the presence of my Savior. I can come there. And here's the thing. The blood of Jesus has done, has already done what needs to happen. The answer would be very simple. And, and I don't know if, if you've ever, well, I'll tell you, I, I called on a, on a medical bill today. Had, had medical bills from things, trying to take care of it. I knew I had a balance. I called them and, and wanted, you know, finally able to take care of the, of the balance. And so I called them and they said, um, you don't have a balance. I said, well, yeah, I do. And I listed what the balance should be. I'd seen the paperwork. I know I have a balance. And, and they said, well, we don't see it. All we see, and, and, and this, is, this happened, actually it was yesterday. I'm sorry, it was yesterday. They said, no, we see zeros. I said, well, okay, but I know you're going to call me later and say, oh, yeah, I forgot about this one. They called me later and they said, we figured out what happened. You had paid up to this, and then the doctor had decided to write off this. Now, I'd been living, if you will, I mean, let me make a little analogy. I'd been living in the fear that I owed this money. But I think if I'd have called them a month ago, they'd have told me your balance is clear. You with me? When Jesus died on the cross, he wrote zeros. 
When you come to the altar and you repent of your sins and you're baptized in Jesus' name and you're filled with the Holy Ghost, that's the equivalent of you already accepting what he already did. He died 2,000 years ago. He didn't die the day you got the Holy Ghost, Brother Steve. He didn't die then. How old were you when you got the Holy Ghost? 54. That salvation was available when you were born. That salvation was available when you were 12. That Holy Ghost was available when you were 25 and 30. When you came at 54 years old, it was already there. You just had to make the call, if I could say it that way. The the blood of Jesus, the atonement is once and for all. And we can do that. When you begin to read chapter 5, it simply is talking about the things that the high priest were and I'm gonna, I'm gonna do this real quick so that we can uh, get through it. But first off, in verse one, the high priests, and we're talking going back kind of to the to the the lineage of Aaron and the high priests in the Old Testament. The high priests were taken from among the men. This is what it meant. In order to be a high priest, you had to be from the people. They didn't go out and get Egyptians to be the high priests. They wanted a high priest from the people that walked with them, that understood. And so the, the chapter one or, or chapter five, verse one says that, that they were they were from the people. They stood, again, another writer said they stood in complete solidarity with the people that they were representing, and they served on behalf of the same people they came out of. When that uh, when, when that priest was born. He was born like every other Jewish boy. And, and he didn't know, uh, especially as you get generations past Moses and Aaron and all that, they didn't know if they were going to be the high priests. Uh, there, there was so many priests and so many sons of Aaron as you get past. Just because you were the son of Aaron didn't mean you'd be a high priest. There were other jobs. That, that child had no idea probably whether or not he was going to be chosen. But then they chose him, and now he serves the same people he came out of. It was the high priest's responsibility in, in, the, in the latter part of that verse that they offered gifts and sacrifices for sins. I don't know why there's a separation of gifts and sacrifices, and there's been people try to explain that. The key word is for sins. They offered sacrifices. They offered atonements, if you will, for the sins and all of that would have been all of the the symbolicness of the tabernacle, all of the rituals of the tabernacle would have been pointless if it wasn't that one act of the sacrifice, the atonement for their sins. And so those priests, they did that. Verse 2 says that that who can have compassion on the ignorant? And again, the, the King James, while it's a beautiful language, it's archaic sometimes and it doesn't use the same tenses that you and I are, are used to using. So if I could read a translation from the New King James Version, it would say something like this. The high priest, again, talking about Aaron and, and those. The high priest, he can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray since he himself is also subject to weakness. Because the high priest was one of them. He could empathize, empathize with them. There's, there's three terms in Scripture. 
Uh, and and I'm, I'm going to pull this from Brother Dan Seagraves. This is something I learned in my study. There's three words in the Bible that we talk about sin and, and the causes of sin. Number one is ignorance. Number two is error. And number three is inattention. And, and in this uh, verse, both uh, verse two, you find those two, two reasons that we sin. One, we can sin because of ignorance, and the other, we can sin because of willful disobedience and error, and, and we just don't do the right thing. And so there was, there was sins that these priests would do, or not sins, there were sacrifices that these priests would do that, that were for all sins. Even, even if somebody, they, there was a, a sacrifice they would do that if somebody should have, you know, uh, you, you had all these dietary laws. If they ate some meat and someone gave them some meat and they realized, they didn't even know that it was unclean meat. They ate catfish. They didn't know that it was catfish. And they ate it. And it was a sin of, of, of you know, innocence, so to speak, but it's still wrong. There was a sacrifice that these priests would do just to cover any and everything they did. And then there were sins that, or there were sacrifices that these priests did to cover sins where, where they knew exactly what they did. Someone came and said, I did this. I, I got mad and, 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 and hurt someone. I stole something, whatever. And they were sacrificed. And so these priests, it was their job. They, they understood it. They, they were there. It says the weakness. It uses that term, the weakness he himself is also compassed with infirmity. It means he is weak. It's because Aaron, his son, his son, keep going down, they had the same temptation and the same propensity to fall into sin as the people they were serving. And so verse 3 says, By reason hereof he ought, as for the people, also for himself. That priest comes, comes and, and Barb, you come and you, you say, I've sinned, and you bring your lamb, and, and that priest sacrifices that lamb, and that priest obtained atonement for you. But that priest had to sacrifice lambs for his own sin. There were, there were sacrifices that he didn't want anybody to know about. There were things he had to sacrifice because of his own sin. But that's the great difference between an, a, a Levitical priesthood and a holy priesthood. Jesus didn't sin. Jesus didn't have to get himself right in order to minister to you and I. Aaron had to get himself right so that he can minister to you. The Levitical priesthood had to get themselves right. But, Aaron, or, but, but, but Jesus, he said, I didn't sin. I didn't have to. I didn't need to offer a sacrifice for himself. That verse 4 tells us that, that he, he, he comes out of the, 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 the lineage of Levi through Aaron. Aaron was the first high priest. His son Eleazar succeeds him. And then Phinehas, the one that, that saw some sin in the camp and went and pushed a spear down through to a, a, a couple that was, that was fornicating in, in front of the whole congregation and, and that zeal for the holiness of God. It was that that God said that the priesthood will always come from the descendants of Aaron. But to demonstrate that Jesus didn't come from that, Jesus comes from the, the, the Melchizedek priesthood. Now, 
in a little bit, we'll get into that a whole lot. Because when you get into Hebrews chapter 7, I think it talks a lot about Melchizedek. But I want to kind of take it to here. Look at verse um, verse 4. And no man taketh this honor unto himself, but he that is called of God as was Aaron. So also Christ glorified not himself to be made a high priest, but he said that unto him, Thou art my son, today have I begotten thee. And this is a, a messianic psalm, and we've, we've said it several times. There's a lot of people as we read this, we see, um, I remember, maybe I can say it this way, Uh, I was on an airplane one time coming back from conference, and there was a, a little old lady sitting in front of me right here, and some guy I didn't recognize, I found out later he had come from conference too, and so he was a preacher I guess, and I was tired, and I really didn't want to talk to anybody, and so I was in my zone out, you know, get on the airplane, wait till it lands mode. And, but I could hear him talking, and, and, and this man was trying to give, him a, give this lady a Bible study there on the plane. And he wasn't doing a great job. He was kind of confusing. And, uh, he, this, this little old lady, she said, I don't understand. How can Jesus, if Jesus is God, how can Jesus talk to himself? Anybody ever had those questions asked, or maybe you've thought that? How does, how does Jesus talk to himself? Well, I, I want let to, me, let me talk to you about the, the humanity of Christ. When you read the conversations between God and Christ, understand first, it's not conversations between two divine persons. But instead, when you see conversations, I said unto my son, or I said unto him, it's the divine talking to the humanity. If, if, if it was too, if it was the if it was God, God's divinity talking to Jesus' divinity, you'd have two persons up there, and that would underscore, that would go against the oneness of God. And, and so it's not two gods talking to each other. It's God talking to the human to the to the human. And, and as you go, there had to be, in order for, for there to be uh, wills, and we're going to talk about this in a moment, in order for there to be understanding, in order for there to be a place where the humanity would be willing to go to a cross, there had to be some, some talk going back and forth. And, and, and so you have these conversations where it says that, you know, Jesus, he, he didn't glorify himself, but God said, I'm going to make you this sacrifice, this high priest. First off, let me put this. He identifies himself with the priesthood of Melchizedek. And in the simplest form, we're going to delve into it a lot coming up. But in the simplest form, Melchizedek was a priest. You can uh, read it, 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 Abraham coming out of Ur. Abraham meets the king of Salem, and, and uh, whose name is Melchizedek. And he was a priest and a king. And, and Abraham offers sacrifices to Melchizedek. Abraham gives Melchizedek tithes. And, and you see all of this, and as you're reading it, you're going, I don't understand. Well, first off, uh, by identifying the priesthood of Jesus with the priesthood of Melchizedek, Jesus' priesthood predates the priesthood of Aaron. There was not, pre- when, when, when the covenant came down on Mount Sinai, that's not the first time you see priests. Melchizedek was a priest. 
And so what we're trying to do is separate Jesus from just being another high priest to being one who is the author, who is before, and the finisher, who will be there at the end of our faith. And, and I, I mentioned this and, and didn't even realize I'd get to it today, but in another sermon I mentioned that in, in, in Israel's history you couldn't be a king and a priest. And when you had a king that wanted to act as a priest, like Saul, there were great uh, uh, problems that came down to it. The king was going to come out of the tribe of Judah. Once, once Saul wasn't, I think Saul was of the tribe of Benjamin, but, but once David came, it was said that the kingdom is never going to depart from your hand, David. And so all the way to Jesus, you've got, you've got an unbroken lineage of a king. But Jesus was also the priest. The Levitical priesthood was limited. Jesus isn't limited. In fact, Melchizedek literally means the king of righteousness. You'll find when we get a little bit later that in Genesis chapter 14, Melchizedek brought out bread and wine. It just All of a sudden you start seeing symbolicness. Jesus breaking the bread and the wine. Jesus becoming, this is my, the, the wine, this is my blood that I'm going to shed. This bread, this is my body I'm going to break. And, and it was there. And so because Jesus was a priest out of the order of Melchizedek, he's a priest forever. In verse 7, you start seeing prayers that Jesus offered. You start seeing prayers in the days of his flesh, in the days of his humanity, when he offered up prayers and supplication with strong crying and tears. What are, I mean, just the easiest. Go to the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus bows in that garden, crying, weeping, praying so hard. He sweated and capillaries burst in his forehead and it sweated great drops of blood, if you will. Now there's some, there's some that would say Jesus really didn't pray. He was God. He was just showing you and I how to pray. But that would do disservice to the humanity of Jesus. You can't take the humanity of the Messiah and explain it away. He was fully man. Listen carefully. And I hope you can get this. The prayers of Jesus were as genuine as the prayers you and I pray today. If you've ever fallen down and prayed and, and your heart was breaking and you desperately needed God to intervene and touch you, Jesus did that. It was the humanity crying out to the divinity. It, it, was, it was actually showing the weakness of the human. Any of you like to get hurt? If you raise your hand, I want you to go talk to my dad. He's a licensed counselor and he's going to talk to you about sadomasochism. Nobody wants to get hurt. And yet here's Jesus, the, 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 the humanity of Jesus, God says you're going to the cross. They're going to, they're going to nail you to a cross and you're not going to, I mean just in the terms, uh, uh, just in the simplest terms of what crucifixion was, it was not the nailing that killed you most likely. That's why they broke the legs later. And so the, the, the God is telling the humanity I need you. You're going to be that sacrifice. You're going to go willingly to a cross. You're going to nail to the cross. You're going to stay up there all day in pain until finally they have mercy and they break your legs so you die. No human wants to go through that. And so he wept. He cried. It was the weakness of humanity that he had. It, and, and, and he didn't understand it in, in a sense. And he, he didn't want to go through it. And so he offered up those prayers. It's the same 
understanding of those Levitical priests offering up sacrifices and gifts for sins, he prayed. That's why Jesus prayed. He said, said, Father, I'm praying for those you gave me. I'm praying for those that are following me. He did it with tears. But when he prayed, it was not one divine person praying to another divine person. Again, I mentioned that would be diathism, not monotheism, but that would be two gods, not that. But neither was it Jesus praying to himself. When he prayed in Matthew chapter 26, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. God could have. When, when Jesus, when the devil looked at Jesus and said, why don't you, and they, they went up onto the top of the temple and said, Jesus, if you jump off, angels will carry you away, you won't die. That could have happened. That could have occurred. God could have saved him from the cross, if you will. God could have saved him from death. But Jesus must go through the cross to sacrifice for you and I, which is why he said, Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. I know sometimes this gets deep, but I want you to listen carefully. When Jesus prayed that prayer, not my will, but thine be done, what he was saying was not the will of humanity, not the will of the flesh, but the will of God. If Jesus is a second person of the Godhead if Jesus is a second God in the Godhead depending on how some view that then you would have a committee up there in heaven of gods and they all have their will and one of those gods their will was subjected to the other that's if you believe that Jesus is one of the Godhead do you understand what I'm saying? There's no divine committee in heaven where they sit around a, a, a boardroom and they say, well, let's, let's do this. And if two-thirds vote, yes, we'll do it. The other one is there. Nobody in their right mind, not even those who might believe that God exists as three persons, would ever say that there's a divine committee where one of those doesn't get their way. Which is why... The oneness of God is seen so beautifully even in Jesus' prayers. Not my will, but thine be done. The will of humanity bowed to the will of God. The Bible says it was a godly fear. In order for Another place. Uh, well, well, let me let me back up there. Uh, the life of Jesus is lived with that attitude of, "Not my will, but Thine be done." And in verse eight that we read, we we still looking on the humanity of Jesus. Jesus, the Son of God, superior to the Aaron. Aaron, uh, the, the, the Levitical priest superior to Joshua superior to Moses superior to the angels superior to the prophets of old but still he learned he grew the Bible says he grew in wisdom and stature 
There's no way that talks about the deity of God because how can God learn anything? How can God grow anywhere? He's already accomplished it. He's omniscient. There's nothing more he can learn. He's sovereign. There's nothing he should obey. But in the humanity, Jesus experienced all that you and I experienced. At the end, he said, I put my life, not my will, but thine be done. That's the opposite of what you and I do. Temptation comes. We know good and well we ought not do it. But when we sin, what we're saying is, Lord, not your will, but mine be done. You see the difference? When we sin, we're saying, my flesh wills, my carnal desires rule. But Jesus showed you and I, as our high priest, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Verse 9 says that he was made perfect. And he became the author of eternal salvation to them that obey him. He was obedient. He resisted every call of temptation. He resisted every distraction. Look through the life of Jesus. Satan constantly buffeted him. Satan constantly tried to turn him away. Satan tried to deter him from the job. Look through the Levitical priesthood. They were priests that got turned. Sons of Korah, they were priests that got turned. Read the book of Jude, uh, uh, the book of Judges, rather. There were priests that got turned, and they they didn't do what needed to be done. But nowhere did Jesus ever let the mission that He was put on earth for distract Him, and because He went to the cross, tempted like as you are, yet without sin, He becomes the author of eternal salvation. Why do we say eternal salvation? Exactly what I said earlier. When He died on the cross. The blood that was shed is eternal. It worked for Peter. It worked for Cornelius. It worked for Paul. It it worked for the second century, the third century. It worked for my grandparents. It works for my dad. It works for me. It works for Zane. It's going to work for my grandchildren. And if God continues to tarry, it will continue to work. The author of eternal salvation. And if a person will obey that eternal salvation becomes yours and I and in verse 10 it says he was called of God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek and it's just we're going to stop right here because it gets into a lot more as we go forward but here the author of Hebrews just wanted to remind you and I of the truth you can read it in the book of Psalms chapter 110 verse 4 says basically the same thing That Jesus wasn't just another high priest. Jesus wasn't just coming to to keep the law rolling and, and do what Aaron had done. But he was a high priest according to Melchizedek's order. A king. A high priest. One who was before. And one who is there after. Would you stand with me today? Later when we get back into it we're going to go quickly that, that into that there's no other covenant that's going to save you. You can't go back to the law of Moses. And to be honest, and this is a little hard to understand, but I think, I think we can get through it. We can't go back even to the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments aren't going to save us. What's going to save you? Faith in Jesus Christ. 
a belief that he is and he will reward them that diligently seek him. You want me to tell you what's going to save you? Acts 2.38. Repent of your sins. Be baptized in Jesus' name so you can take on the blood that he shed for you and you shall be filled with the gift of the Holy Ghost. And that promise is unto you and to your children and all that are far off. No more priests. No more sacrifices of cows. No more temples. No more ceremonies. It's faith in Jesus Christ, our high priest. Why don't you lift your hands for a moment? Why don't you talk to him in Jesus' name? Father, I love you.